right, gentlemen, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Say Word. We got a smaller squad than usual. Hassan and Hirsch were not able to make it, but I got my dudes, Batter and Eddie, joining us for today for a really good or what is going to be a good, good conversation. How are you guys doing? Doing great. How are you? The week has been well. I cannot complain. I'm sitting out in Toronto. I'm reporting you live to you from 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 Tio. I'm out of the Look at this out of town man. I'm an out of town man. <laughs> I'm an out of town man. I'm an out of town man. It's actually been the longest I've ever been away from Toronto in my entire life. Fun fact. How does it feel? It it like it's surreal. It's surreal. Like when I was like landing, I just had this like feeling of nostalgia. Like I could see the 401 going west coming down and that was like a while back like my commute on my way home so it was just like so surreal like just looking at that seeing where I first worked when I first came out of school and all of that and just being home felt like I never left I know how, how Drake and the weekend feel when, when they come back <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's funny you said that because I remember I worked overseas for like a year and like right before I, I left I was like man I man, I'm so bored of Toronto, man, Toronto, ah, the city, ah, so frustrated, you know, and then I remember coming back, like, landing at Pearson, and I was like, wow, I actually really miss this place, like, yeah, it gets, it gets, sometimes, you know, there's certain things that get on your nerves, but man, Toronto is a very special place. 100%, 100%, so it's funny that you say that my experience was the complete opposite, I was dreading leaving Canada or leaving Toronto like one one night when I first moved to New like dreading it like I was like kind of up in arms about it 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 actually caused some friction with my wife and I because she's like why did you agree to it and I'm like I don't know but like I don't know why I'm doing this and then needless to say just like with anything you get used to it all right we'll move into to our fun topics or our first fun topic for today so Gentlemen, I'm sure you've heard it on on both your ends and both your networks, but there's just so much talk today about burnout. People are feeling overworked. They're exhausted. People seem to be finding this perfect balance between work and their personal lives. And luckily, at least this is what I find working in tech and being in the private sector, there's actually a lot of empathy towards this, or there's starting to be a lot more conversations around this. Um, so whether like you're on LinkedIn or you're like reading from other platforms, wherever you consume your news and, and information, there's a lot of talk around how to address burnout and exhaustion, right? So some people were seeing they're taking sabbaticals, like long leaves of absences. Some people are just leaving their jobs outright and simply just living off of savings. But more notably, the four-day work week has started to make headlines, you're right. You heard it right here, fellas, the four day work week. And I don't know about you guys, but it's like the more it's being talked about, the more it feels like this is going to become a reality, at least within our lifetimes living in, in this part of the world, kind of probably like how it felt like when air travel was going to become a thing. So my, my first question, Eddie, then I, you know, I'd love to hear from you since you're kind of like the, the finance guy of the group. Um, walk us through the economics like what are from like a business standpoint the pros and the cons of switching to a a four-day work week switching to a four-day work week i think would be something that is much 
um, appreciated. I think I'm coming in from uh, working from a corporate standpoint, um, even from like a mental health uh, and then just an emotional standpoint as well. It sure. feels good knowing that you need you don't have like as many days to work as well. You have that four days, meaning that you're, the work that you're going to do is going to be very purposeful and yeah. very intentional in that way. Uh, I think the challenge is, is that everyone is going to try and get five days of work into four days, which always is the case as well. So meaning that you feel very much rushed for time, but in terms of productivity, um, in terms of your own output as an employee, I think you come back a lot more refreshed and a lot more invigorated as well. Yeah. And one thing to consider as well is, as in given the fact that in North America, for instance, compared to our counterparts in Europe, we don't get as many holidays, three, four weeks uh, at a time, whereas our European counterparts may have a much larger span, right? So a four-day week may actually be more helpful in that kind of sense to be able to help rejuvenate as well. Um, but given the, fact, given the fact that we are in North America as well, it may, I, think, I don't know how, how many corporate entities would be willing to give both a four-day work week, maintain our existing kind of um, holiday structure and also our salary output, something is going to have to give, right? And yeah. maybe because maybe, maybe this is um, my the cynic in me, um, but I do anticipate that if we were to move into a four-day work week, um, either we're going to get a reduction in our holidays, uh, for instance, or maybe a reduction in the salary that output, maybe not. Um, mm. But I do know that um, for most businesses, they are working under a very um, traditional capitalist format as well, where you're working for five days, five days of output, not the four days of output. So meaning that if you're giving people one extra day, that means like one extra day less of money being generated, one extra day less of, um, I think, results being happened, right? So yeah. I think it does put a constraint on the business. But for the worker, I think it's a great deal. From the worker standpoint. Yeah. Got it. But like you brought up an interesting point that like with, you know, your three or four day work week that like you felt there was like more purpose behind your work. Do you think that that's something that whether it's business entities or corporations, that that's something that they're considering or is it they're just kind of looking at it like they're kind of stuck on the fact that like, hey, this isn't going to work, kind of like working from home isn't going to work. But then the pandemic happened and overnight we were all able to like work from home uh, without like much, uh, disruption or anything like that. What's your take? I think that's a great intake. And I think sometimes I wish I was in some of the boardrooms to hear how this conversation is actually happening. Right. I, I assume yeah. there'll be some people who are on both sides. Right. But I'd also like to get the input from you guys as well, who work both in tech and also from government. How does that feel? I think yeah. from a corporate yeah. standpoint, I think the working from home, was I think even when I was working in the office prior to the pandemic, I had, I think I was taught to believe that working from home was a bad thing, that yeah. even spending amount of time was you're less productive and you should be in the office. And when I actually started working from home, I found I managed my time a lot better. I was able to be more efficient with my meetings sure. and my output really like either increased or did not change so much. So it really was like, what is the whole purpose of being in the meeting? And I just realized I'm spending more time traveling to the office. I'm spending so more time going out for lunches, being involved in meetings that I really don't need to be in as well. Whereas I can just have a quick call, 
get it done and get it out of the way. Um, but I think it is most corporations, I don't think will move at the pace that we want them to move unless it is some kind of added pressure or like say market force. So like if they're yeah. seeing more competitors offering four day, four day work weeks, perhaps they'll change it. If they see that the government is going to make a move on this, they're going to try and get ahead of the situation and move it. Right. So I yeah. think similar to that pandemic, you need some kind of external force yeah. willing to like engage um, existing players to move into the pace in which society is moving to. Correct. And it looks like the great resignation isn't exactly. uh, enough yeah. of a market force to do that. Batter, you're the public sector guy of the group. Um, what's been the sentiment like in your world? I'm completely like far removed from that, um, particularly as it relates to issues like burnout, exhaustion, yeah. uh, mental health issues. Like what, what are you hearing on your, on your end? Well, I think you know, most public sector employees, like it, it varies, right? Like I work in the Ontario public sector. It's a, it's a really large employer, right? And so there's a pretty diverse um, kind of set of ways people work. Um, it's a highly unionized environment in some yeah. ways they work like that, right? Like they know they're unionized. So some people, I don't want to say they slack off, but, you know, they yeah. do take advantage of the, some of the balance that it provides you. Right. Um, but just bringing it back to your question, like before COVID, uh, we already had something called flexible work arrangements. And so you had a choice of two things, really, which is you either get to so you work, you either work more. So you do an extra hour a day or whatever. And then every two weeks you just get a day off. Right. Uh, and you get to pick what that day is, right? And you get that every whatever weeks or however you've arranged it, you get that all the time, which Correct. is great. Uh, yeah. I I actually had that set up, um, but I worked in a very high performing or high demand area at that time. Got it. And I was already doing that extra hour a day. So it, I, I, I felt that, you know, I, it was like owed to me, but at the same time, the day I came back, all that work was just, waiting for me anyway so it made it harder that day i came back it just made my job harder so it kind of made me mm. dread even doing it right yeah um, i actually ended up just switching back and being like i don't, I don't want to deal with the mess of like being off and not everyone does that flexible work arrangement so people kind of look at you like oh this guy you know just taking a day off in the middle of the week you know um, <laughs> and the other the, so and then the other option you have is to do uh every week you get to pick a day to work from home which is almost equally problematic because at that time, no one was really working from home uh, collectively, right? You had like one or two people who would pick a day and then you'd have to figure out like, how is this person going to, we didn't have teams. We didn't have zoom at that time. So how's this person going to call in? We had to use like conference calling, like our, like that stuff seems like dinosaur equipment now. Right. Uh, and no one knows how to use it. Right. So it just caused more problems than it solved. Right. Cause created just different type of stress right yeah and so i guess coming back to the question about like the uh, the four-day work week where i work no one really likes to do much on a monday you know yeah and it's almost taboo to action something for someone on a friday so you really like your your week is already kind of leaking time right yeah and so if you were to switch to a four-day work week where people had a little bit more time to spend away from the office, they would be under this kind of mutual understanding with their employer that like, hey, now we're only working four days a week. 
you're expected to work during those four days right and yeah. keep working like not slack off not whatever like not get upset if someone sends you a meeting request for monday at 9 a.m right like i don't know if yeah. that'll ever not be okay but but still like those are the things that i kind of think about right uh and eddie brings up another good point uh it's kind of unrelated to what i just spoke about but like you give people more time to enjoy their time off right and we live ultimately we live in this like consumer economy you give more time for people to spend their money there might even be a business case as to why it actually might generate more money i don't know if eddie if you want to deep i've heard that i don't know if eddie want you want to debunk that or if you would support that kind of thinking but um it just it's good at least i think just to think about those things and maybe even explore it right before we kind of just shoot it down and um i think i work in a unionized environment so these things are collectively bargained right and so when the employer takes a strong stance against anything, it's more of like a political game. It's kind of like they're doing their part to bargain on their behalf and kind of not move the needle, right? They don't want to move the goalposts on like what is acceptable, what is like the status quo, right? Uh, we're actually going through collective bargaining right now. And so one of the things that we're bargaining on is this kind of hybrid work model, right? And the yeah. government doesn't want to discuss this at all. They just, they want COVID to be done and everyone back in the office five days a week. and you know, the reality is oh, like the future of the workplace yeah. is going to be a hybrid model, it seems, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And so them taking a hard stance on it isn't necessarily them saying, this is outrageous. We're never going to do it. It's more of like, this is where they're bargaining from. It's part of just, it happens. It's like the business side of doing this work, right? Um, but yeah, I don't know, Eddie, if you, if you have any thoughts on that, like, does this really, is this, is there really a business case in favor of doing this? Or is this more of like giving people kind of like this implicit understanding, like they have more balance or uh, just like something that will kind of know inherently, but maybe not be able to measure? I don't know. You know, Vada, you bring up a good point. And, and I wish we also had like an economist as well on the podcast to also like oh, yeah. give us a trend as to like you what this are looks our like. economist, Eddie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <true> economist. <laughs> We're our economists. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say that I remember even like during, because um, I, I used to work government as well, during those four days, if I had like a four day work week, right? Um, that's the time I usually like, I can spend, I can think about what holidays, long trips I'm going to have. Right. So that means we're looking, we're coming out of a pandemic as well. So like, if you can incentivize more people to take trips around the country or anywhere else, or anywhere else around the country, you're going to incentivize more tourism because people have more time, um, to actually visit more places, stimulate a lot of the local economies in that case as well. Um, if people feel less stressed and less um, less anxious about how they're going to work, you may find more people have time to actually think about. All right, let's you know, let's go shopping. Let's do. Let's go purchase this as well on our off times as well. I think because given people only have like two days, um, it doesn't give them a lot of time. They're actually either going to do their chores, do grocery shopping, take their kids to whatever weekend activities, or even if you don't have kids as well, but. Um, you also have your own personal obligations. You don't have time to really spend on the things that you want to really get done as well, your own yeah. personal initiatives, personal courses as well. So I think they could be a case as well. I think having that extra day means people have one, I think, one more day of rest and they can actually spend money where they need to, like redirect it into small business, small economies, go around, in, in, at least 
engage more tourism around the place as well, right? So, but even from, uh, if we're looking at from a talent perspective as well, one of the reasons my mom chose Canada for, for our family was because of a really good education system. It was mm. safe as well. Mm. But if you're looking at it at today's workers as well, if you have that, but then in addition to that, you have more hybrid working. And guess what? Canada's companies also offer four-day work week. You're going to be looking at a lot of talent that is going to be trying to flock in from around the world. And you're going to actually increase your own like base of potential compared to the U.S. where even Easter isn't like celebrated as widely as it's well. It's not. I, I, I witnessed. I experienced that. Yeah. Which is very surprising compared <laughs> yeah. to like the rhetoric we hear from time to time. Right. But if if we even present a country that is very flexible and also very looking out for the best interests of the people that are living here as well. Dynamic, yeah. You're going to get some of the best talent flocking to this country. So I think there could be very much an economic and business case for that four-day work week. That's an interesting point. And I think what I hear from you guys both is that like it's there's almost an element of like culture that has to be kind of embedded. Like Batter, you mentioned it, like getting people to actually enjoy their time off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Eddie, you're saying there's almost like an economic benefit because of like, whether it's talent attraction and just like overall productivity and output yeah. that companies are actually going to get a lot more out of their people in a four day work week than they do with five. Yeah. Um, I have a, a, a very different take uh, and I'm going to preface this with the fact that I am newly married. I'm newly wed kind of, I don't have kids. Um, if you had asked me a few months ago, whether I'd be in favor of a four day work week, I would have been like kind of all like, all on board with it. And I wouldn't have like a thought out answer like the way you both guys did. But now I think I'm kind of in the middle, right? I think it like it depends, right? Um, and I think for me, like I was like one of those people that you could say, um, I was like kind of dealing with exhaustion, um, burnout, if you will. And um, like the, and the demands of my career, it's like they're, they're like, it's really high intensity and it's like high performing culture. Um, kind of like what you'd mentioned better. Right. But I think like, I'm not saying it's the fix or it's like the solution, but I think what has helped a lot for me is creating boundaries and like just being really vigilant with like how I use my time. Now, granted, I don't have kids, so I, I can't, I'm not speaking from a place where like, you know, like I, Like I know when kids come into the picture, it kind of just throws everything off. But like, just, I think for me, setting those boundaries, like for example, even I've talked about this in past episodes, like just being really vigilant about what time I go to sleep, right? Like making sure I'm in bed, like I'm like a five-year-old by a certain time, getting up like really early. Um, And even for those like one day, like, you know, like Friday, it's like, it's a ghost town at work. Like no one's doing anything. No one's having meetings. I usually invest that time where it's like I have a couple of client meetings, but then like I'm using the rest of that time for like things like follow up, uh, admin stuff, but then also personal development, like at work, like whether it's taking courses or uh, like upskilling and redeveloping. And I found that like my overall well-being has been like, like since starting this like mini experiment has been far better. So like with that, all that to say, I'm not opposed to the five-day work week um as long as like one of those days like an employer is like super adamant about you like kind of just investing in yourself whatever that might mean and then it's also coupled with with boundaries 
That's exactly it. I think the boundaries are really, really important. And I think just one more day to yourself, I don't think it's going to cost anyone, but I think no. me actually yeah. have a huge improvement on everyone's health. Yeah. I would also want to make sure that I'm using one of those days, like in the right way, right. Versus just kind of like wasting it away, but we can, we can go on for days. Um, I think we'll move on to our, our next topic. And this is completely different from what we've just been chatting about the last 20 minutes, but we'll, we'll get into it anyways. We'll move into to our main topics and um, we're going to shift completely here to, to mostly uh, politics, Canadian politics specifically. And so for one of our main topics, we're going to be talking about the Ontario provincial election, which is happening in June. And for me, as, a, as an American resident, I, I think I get to play that card now. I get a pass on not being as mindful uh, as that the fact that it was going to be approached or that it is approaching us. But, you know, I, I, like I mentioned, I, I landed in Toronto yesterday and it seems like there's a trend here that like not a lot of people care about it. Like people are just kind of, I don't know if they're desensitized or they're just not as excited. Um, people are not talking about it in their social circles. Like, I think I'm also, I find it strange that like even, election signs are not up on lawns and all over uh, Brampton where, where I'm staying at currently. Um, I'm curious for you both, are you seeing the same thing among your circles? And, and, and why is that? Or why do you think that's the case? So maybe I can start off here as well. I think um, Please, maybe sir. there's some folks in my circle that have been talking about it, but then those folks are running in I think for different spots in um, in the campaign for different parties, right? So they're they are politically um, active, um, unmotivated. But I think also the writ won't be dropped until for another few weeks um, in May, right before the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I think there's still a little bit of time. But I would also um, want to I think assume there is also a little bit of voters fatigue. We had uh, an election very recently, federal election very recently. Um, and people are just like, we're coming out of this whole uh, pandemic lockdown. Things are slowly beginning to go back to some sense of normal, um, even with the variants popping up left, right, and center. Um, I think people are trying to get back into their world of normal, planning their trips, travel, um, but then also focusing on other things. I also don't think it's like, a top of mind issue. Provincially, I don't, uh, I find like the provincial outcomes don't tend to be as like say high as a, a turnout, as say federal outcomes as well, maybe because of just the perception uh, as well. And this election is coming, it's happening in the summer. So um, a lot of time we may have like a very low voter turnout um, as well. I think there's a lot to be said, but I think in terms of where the public's mindset is, um, a lot of their issues I think have been, I think are being dealt with now with just like restrictions opening up and their interests are more traveling outside, um, of course, going into the summer. But I think maybe the election would have been different if it was happening in the fall after everyone has come back. It's a little bit more relaxed because one of the central issues we've been talking about on the podcast is also inflation. Um, and mm. cost of goods, cost of living has gone up as well. Yeah, so, which the federal government, which we'll talk about, yeah, in a bit. Which, which I think is like, will, will that factor into the election coming to the summer? Um, where people are just like, of course, people are summer, people are free, they want to do everything and everything. But then when people are a little bit much more tame, I think, and they look at their wallets, it's like, oh my God, you know, like 
the cost of living has really gone up, right? So um, I, I would say like there's a little bit of voter fatigue. Um, there is also the climate people's interests are focused elsewhere. And three, the election um, season hasn't like will officially start going up, I think in a couple of weeks. So I think we may see a change there. So two things. First thing is you have friends that are running for politics or running on us. That was a total flex, by the way. I, I caught that. I don't know if you caught that better. Yeah, that was and, a side flex, side flex. <laughs> it was a side flex. He's like, like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the sentiment is, but my friends that are in in circles that are running for office are talking about it. And then second, Eddie, from from like amongst those circles, in all seriousness, like for the folks that are running. You know, everything that you're talking about, whether it's voters fatigue, uh, people with competing priorities, this the fact that it's happening in the summer. Is there anything that they're doing to address that or do they have like concerns of their own as well to that? Like, you know, maybe we're not privy to as as voters. Um, I think from the friends, because I think they're I think they're working. One is um seeking office for the conservatives. Another is seeking for the liberals. Um, and I think one third person is for the NDP. Um, I think the challenge here is the stakes aren't high enough. You know, a good election like um, Tom and I think you coming from the U.S. as well. I think the way the Americans do their their elections, um, despite how fraught and crazy they are, they do provide a sense of entertainment. There's a sense sure. of yeah. um, some kind of likability. There's a sense of like a movie, like a conflict happening. You know what the main issues are, it's and it gets the yeah. It gets the voters revved up. So it could be like um, identity politics. It could just be war. It could just be even like a critical race theory, for instance, as well, right? But it gets people like um, fired up to just go to the polls, really state their opinions. They know who they're voting for. The issues here are we're coming out of a pandemic. So we want to really like get out of the pandemic. So I think that's still state of mind for most people. But also the candidates, don't like say the leaders of the parties don't really stand out. I think yeah. you have Doug Ford, you have yeah. uh, Andrea Hovath. I think, and you also Steven have Del Duca. Or Steph, yeah, Del Steven Duca Del Duca. For, yeah, yeah. Steven Del Duca for the Liberals as well. But of all those three candidates, none of them really stand out as like I really like. They're not like polarizing of a candidate whether you really like them or you really don't like them. They're pretty flat. They're boring. Yeah. So it's not really like, and the issues and the candidates don't really like fire you up. So it's like, whatever. And also most people are going to be giving, I would assume will be giving either the conservatives a pass because so they managed through the pandemic as well. They didn't have like a formal way in which they could govern. Let's give them another go at it. Most voters are like that. But then I think the turnout I think will impact, like, say, the results. But I'm open to hearing uh, what Bader has to say, given that um, he also is in the province as well. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, it's funny. At the start of this whole election period, they always send out this email where they remind us of our roles and responsibilities as per, you know, the election, as public servants and whatever. We're supposed to be bipartisan, whatever. So... Like, I obviously, I've said enough on this podcast, people could probably know where I lean, like how I feel about all of these candidates, right? Um, and I kind of agree with Eddie, like, I don't really feel anything about any of these candidates. I think it's fair to say that none of them 
kind of create that kind of emotional response that you might see in the United States where it's this kind of like all or nothing type of politics, right? And so it's funny you say this because like I just saw a picture on Reddit of someone putting an American flag on uh, the, the parliament in Ottawa. And it's like, how does that even happen? But it's like, I guess to take something really silly and kind of try to find some nuance in it, I guess there's this desire for people to be more like active and more aware of what's happening in their country, et cetera, right? Uh, even if it's misinformation, right? But I think it comes back to like a few years ago, uh, this is not just in Canada, but around the world, there's this like populist politics that have kind of become the, like the, the way that people practice, you know, their political voice, right? And so people don't necessarily care about like the details anymore. They become more like single issue voters, right? Yeah. So if it's like, you really against the sex ed curriculum, Kathleen Wynne's got to get out, right? Yeah. If you don't like <laughs> pandemic response, Doug Ford, he's got to go, right? Yeah. And so we've kind of come into this space where do you really need to campaign when everybody really knows who they're voting for already? Yeah. Right. Uh, maybe people on the left are split between Horvath and Del Duca. Uh, but for the most part, right, I think like most people I talk to, they know who they're going to vote for. Right. Um, and if you look at the split, it's kind of the same, except, you know, the NDP and uh, Liverpool uh, uh, liberals have kind of flipped. Right. Uh, in the pre balloting or the pre like the polls or whatever. Right. So, you bring up Del Duca, you almost couldn't even bring up his name. People don't even know what he looks like, right? Like, who is he, right? And so you have to also understand electoral politics. Like, he's from Vaughn. Vaughn is mm -hmm. typically a conservative stronghold, right? And so having a liberal candidate or a liberal leadership candidate come from that area may sway enough votes to kind of help the liberals win the next election, right? And so, um, like, I knew who he was. He was my minister for, I think, eight months, six or eight, six, six seven, eight months, something like that. Uh, so I knew who he was and he's not a, he's not a bad guy. He's a pretty nice person. Um, but I, I honestly, I haven't heard enough from him to even make an, uh, an opinion. Right. How interesting. Yeah. It brings me to then Horvath, right? Like Horvath, her job. And this is, pro I'm probably the most critical of Horvath only because the way I see it is her job is to win elections. She's never won an election. Right. Um, but regardless, she stays in office. Right. And so mm -hmm. maybe people, have some apathy as to, you know, whether this is effective anymore, whether like voting is our way of expressing our opinion in a democracy. Right. And so if you don't see the needle shift ever, maybe people think that, okay, maybe it's not important anymore. Maybe I don't need to campaign. Maybe I don't need to take leaflets. Maybe I don't need to go to town halls about, you know, certain issues anymore. Maybe it's just not worth it anymore. I can just enjoy my summer. Like Eddie said, maybe yeah, yeah. it's going to be really low this time. Right. Yeah, um, I also think the thing about burnout is really important because, and we're going to talk about this with the federal budget and the, the stuff that we have coming up, but like you see the federal government starting to jump into areas of governance that are typically not federally mm -hmm. mandated, right? Mm -hmm. And so you see, you've had all these discussions for the last couple of years with Trudeau and, and the conservatives and this fighting back and forth. And now you have a provincial election and you're like, wait, didn't we talk about all this already? Like, I've had enough of this. I don't want to talk yeah. about any of this anymore. Right. And so we've kind of blurred the lines on what is 
a provincial issue, what's a municipal issue, et cetera. Right. And so I do agree with Eddie when he says this, there's this burnout now and people are just kind of like, you know what, there's this one issue I really don't like, and that's all I have time to kind of invest myself in. And that's how I'll vote. Um, And that's really where we're, I feel like that's where we're at. At the end of the day, people are going to be hung up on one issue and you can't lose sight of that. And that's kind of how the politicians are starting to do their politics, right? Pandemic response, big issue. Housing, we're going to talk about that. That's a big issue, right? And so we are where we are now. This yeah. Point. And it's almost like it, it, it sounds like just like from everything I'm hearing and I'm not by any means like following it, like I'd mentioned, but like whoever does win, whether like PCs secure their like manage to go for re-election or it's the liberals or the NDP, it's like almost kind of like a meaningless victory, if you will, right? Just because of like how far removed everyone is from it. Like you mentioned, Matter, you have some folks in your circle that are super in tune, but they're the minority at the end of the day. And the majority is just like, everyone just wants to live their lives. Everyone wants to join the summer uh, or enjoy their summer. Um, so it's uh, it's kind of like the, the chicken and the egg, like who, who needs to lean in more? Is it the leaders, right? Um, or is it like kind of like the, the population, right? Like we need to just become more conscious of ourselves and like our issues and hold our leaders way more accountable than we have traditionally. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's also like an interesting point. I think also for like listeners who may not be familiar with uh, the electoral setup, um, I think Canada, uh, Canada and all its provinces follow a, a parliamentary system. So we don't elect the leaders. Um, but we elect the members of parliament yeah. or members of provincial parliament as well. Yeah. So if you have, I, some people are very much more connected with their member of parliament or member of provincial parliament. And that they would elect that person, whichever party that is as well, right? Um, the downside of it as well, based on our electoral system, and we also follow it first, uh, first past the post system as well, where you have to gain a certain amount of ballots in order to be considered to have a majority government. Um, in, in some cases, you may have a really standout uh, member of parliament or provincial parliament, um, an elected official who really believes in the issues, believes in the community, is willing to go to bat for that community. Problem is, is because of, say, especially if we're looking at liberal and NDP, um, there's something also called as vote splitting as well, right? So like if I place my, on strategic voting, if I place my vote with the NDP, um, chances are, say the conservatives may win the riding. But if I give my vote to the liberals, um, chances are I won't go to the conservatives, but it will go to the liberals. But then at least I'll have, um, I'll have someone else that's not conservative as well. Or like you can switch up the parties however you want to as well, right? But you pick... Uh, the devil that you're most comfortable with in that kind of scenario. And I think that also does impact it as well in some cases where you have either really standout MP that you vote for and that increases a party's share, but then you you don't really resonate with the leader, you don't like them, or you decide to be more strategic with your vote. You don't give it to the party that you want to, but you give it to an alternative party as well, just because you don't you want to make that vote meaningful, right? And I think at the end of the day, it is, most people want to make sure their vote has some kind of meaning. Um, but given the environment that we have, at least how do you provide that meaning when one, you're not so familiar with the leaders or you don't resonate with them or two, the issues are not, are, are more, are, 
more than just like single issues as well. What other issues should I be concerned with? Yeah. yeah. The reality is, yeah, I feel like the apathy is the result of a lot of the things that you mentioned, right? Yeah. It's just real. it's hard to like see that all, all of these things happening. And then on the other side, like make a meaningful choice. You kind of get pulled into it yourself. Like, well, everyone's doing it this way. I have to do it too. So it's almost scary just listening to all of this and listening to your perspectives, um, especially when you think about the cracks in our system. Or, or, or even cracks in terms of like our own knowledge gap about like how the system works and how to best navigate it. Because I think we go through that at some point in school, but it's it's never refined or never reinforced as we kind of go through life to the point where we like where we're at now, where we're just completely apathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully, we're not apathetic on our next topic, which is with regards to the federal budget. And so, in early April 2022, for our listeners, the Canadian government, as you may know or may not know, released the federal budget, which is a 304-page document that was titled A Plan to Grow Our Economy and Make Life More Affordable. And so the budget covered everything from housing affordability to restrictions on foreign investments to diversity and inclusion to indigenous reconciliation, climate control, among others. And, you know, reading it firsthand, I didn't didn't read the whole 304-page report. Spoiler alert, I read like the the Coles notes, uh, you know, nobody got time for that. Um, my, my first sentiment was that this is a very aspirational plan. Um, and on the surface, you know, it's, it seems reflective and relevant to the world that we live in. So I, I feel like we've been, you guys, we've been so critical so far of our, our, of our politics. Let's maybe take it down a notch. You know, what would, you know, you, I'm sure you, both of you, you're, you're more well-read than me in, in this kind of stuff, but you know, let's start with the good. What what did you like seeing uh, in in this year's budget? Um. Well, okay. So I'll go with the good. Yeah, let's go with the good. Please. I'll go with the good. Yeah. It's not great, but <laughs> it's a good start, right? Um. And this is so. There's two sides of this issue, which is housing. There's two sides of it. There's the good and the bad. So I'll address the good, right? And the good is. The federal government decided a few years ago to get back in the business of housing, right? And so historically, or at least for the last like, you know, few decades, the role has been around lending, interest rates, some of like the more macro level, like building, like how we can empower builders, things like that, like some of the more macro level things. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you think about in the post-war period, and this is like, you know, where middle-class wealth in the West kind of exploded, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The federal government was very active in giving people loans, access yeah. to loans, uh, build, helping builders build uh, homes in lots of different places in the country. Yeah. This isn't just in Canada. It was very prominent in the United States and the UK, et cetera, right? Um, it, it was intended to help families, help grow economies, help people have more kids, right? Um, generate middle-class wealth, et cetera, right? And so only recently, like, the liberals have said, okay, we're going to get back into this business, Right. Um, until then it was like affordable housing has typically been a municipal and provincial government thing. So it's not a bad thing to have more government, more of a government's role, especially in our type of, we live in like a welfare state economy, right? Like it's not a bad thing that they're getting more involved and, you know, there are going to be some growing pains along the way. There are definitely some things I'm very cynical of though, um, but there's going to be growing pains along the way. And we're starting of a, a position where, like the word we're using is crisis. Some may, might even say complete ruin. Like 
be, being able to afford a house is just not a thing anymore, right? Yeah. So I think, um, but the good is that they're getting back into this discussion. Maybe there's more bilateral conversations they can have with the provincial governments, maybe even more direct conversations with municipalities to help figure out or alleviate some of the issues that they have. That's a very tricky thing. If, if you've ever worked in government, like federal to municipal discussions are very tricky, right? So um, I don't know, like, that's the good. I don't know, Eddie, if you want to jump in here, if you have anything to say. <laughs> the good, I think also for some context as well, that this is, um, the fir- this is a budget going when we're getting into this kind of recovery mode. And I think there's a lot happening when this budget is released, you have that war in Russia with Russia and Ukraine as well happening at the same time, you have a huge uh, supply chain issue happening. Um, in addition to that, we're having, we're experiencing inflation and increase in interest rates. So I think that's, you know, that's um, in the context of that. But I think in terms of, say, if we look at the individual, um, the person, uh, the day-to-day person, I think these are some of the good stuff that are happening as well, right? So government is introducing some form of a tax-free first home savings account, I think which is going to operate very similar to the TFSA where um, there's no tax uh, going in and no tax that will be charged on you if you take it out as well. But this is limited to $40,000 as well. But similar to an RSP, you will be able to get tax deductible if those if you make contributions to that. So I think people looking to buy a home, this is a great way in which they can begin to save up, get to that $40,000, make those contributions and get tax deductible. In addition to, um, so I think this is a win-win. And especially for those with families um, that are looking to save up for those early on in their careers, this is really, really great. I think they're planning on also doubling the first time home buyers tax credit to $10,000, which will provide up to like $1,500 in direct support. So I think that's also going to be really great. They're putting a ban on like say foreign investments of residential or commercial enterprises from people who are not citizens or permanent residents for two years. So that should help. I think this is a government's way of trying to cool the market. We'll see if that works. Um, this is something that Bader alluded to. Um, the government is trying to get into other areas of its jurisdiction that it's not normally involved in. So if we're looking yeah. at healthcare, like the 5.3 billion of dental care for Canadians, Canadian families that have incomes less than $90,000 annually, uh, starting with those 12 and older and then expanding it to 18 years over the next uh, few years. I think that's a great way, especially dental care is not covered. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really, really going to, I think, really support a lot of people in terms of getting that kind of access. I think what was absent in this, I think, was the pharma care, um, which I think is also very necessary. Yeah, there's a lot that you guys covered there. Um, and it, I think the sentiment that I get from listening to just that is that it's, it's a good start, but better. I can't help but just read between the lines um you weren't impressed tell us now like let's get to your favorite part like what what are some of the cracks what are some of the gaps i think Um, you know and part of this is kind of me reading between the lines too right it's not that they're explicitly saying something that i don't like it's more like um so the big things were housing military and climate change right coming back to the housing thing a lot of the things that 
uh, Eddie mentioned are really positive, right? But they're, they're positive for people who have the money to leverage those programs. And the reality in Canada is the, the people that have that money, the number of people is fast decreasing. There's not enough money to go around. There's not enough money in people's pockets to even leverage the, these tax-free savings accounts and whatnot, right? So I think there's an underlying thing that needs to be addressed first before people can start and taking advantage. So, you know, you could create all these things, but if people don't use it, then it's all just fluff. It's all just things just to be said publicly. Aspirational. Right? Yeah. It, yeah. Aspirational, or it's just the appearance of fixing a problem, not actually fixing the problem. Right. Um, for instance, like the restrictions on home buying, right. Many of the restrictions and taxes they put in place are specific to corporately owned real estate, Right. Corporately owned residential real estate, meaning businesses cannot buy and sell real estate free, freely, willy-nilly like that, right? And so, you know, that is a major part of how our real estate, uh, like how the real estate industry works and how our housing market has kind of swelled over the years. Um, but okay, now to, to, to play devil's advocate as well, you know, there wasn't one budget or one action they could have taken to solve a lot of these issues in like one fell swoop, right? So like I have to at least give them the chance. And this is why I mean like I'm reading in between the lines on them because they need to then follow up, follow up with kind of filling in, you know, the in-between between all these policies, right? So it's like I said, it's good that they are looking back at like helping families attain the things that you know, typically we associated with like growing a family, which is like having a house and affording a good education for your kids. And, you know, like the dental plan, plan is a really great step, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I worked on contract for many years. Um, I, I didn't have access to dental care until I got married, right? So that would have really helped me, right? And I know what it was like. And that's actually a really positive thing. All that to say, all this to say that I wanted to see more I wanted to see more, but we also have to give them a chance to get there. Um, a cynic would say, well, they had all these years. Why didn't they do it? Right. And the reality is it wasn't their jurisdiction. And it's kind of now they're forcing themselves onto these issues. Um, and hopefully there's a bit more bilateral discussion that happens with provinces on housing because um, it's our housing market can't be fixed we can't get any worse. Right. And, you know, I have a friend myself who was like, you know, they just raised my interest. They just doubled my interest rate on my house that I just bought. Right. And now he's like basically, basically house poor now. Right. So it's going to hurt a lot of people, any action. So like, I don't want to advocate for any more aggressive action because a lot of people are going to get hurt by it. Right. Yeah. So it puts me in a kind of like this like state of ambivalence. Like I don't really know what is the best solution that'll hurt the least amount of people, but people already hurting, like, what do we really do? What do we prioritize? Right. So, um, yeah, a lot of this for me comes from an emotional place. I have a family. I want to buy a house. I want to do all these things. I want my kids to have a good education. Right. I want to have money left over for my retirement. Look, I selfishly want these things too. So we can only hope that they can make it work because we honestly, we don't have time anymore. Right. Like we see what's happening in the world. There is no time to like 
figure it out anymore. You just got to do it, right? So I don't know. I think about it, you've been like um, hitting us with some really, really good notes, philosophical notes, but then like also. Even on the fun uh, topics. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. I don't know what you ate for breakfast this morning, but you should. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to have that recipe. A lot of times I find politicians are always looking for the easy way out, a short-term solution, a yeah, band-aid solution. A band-aid, yeah. And a lot of that is um, influenced by, um, say, for example, uh, poll ratings. What are, what, are, what are the pollsters saying? What are people like, um, concerned with as well? Um, how is this going to look politically? I think there's a difference between a something that looks good from a policy perspective and something that looks good from a political perspective. Something good policy may really like ruin you politically as well. But you need a sense, you need someone who has the guts to be willing to do some kind of like really complex stuff, really mm-hmm. um, stuff that's beyond their time and willing to lose their, their seat, their next four years. But they know whatever they put in place now will actually help people down the line. But people aren't really, it's more about political expediency. What can I do now to maintain myself, win, my, win myself another four years in the next election? So it becomes so incremental. You get very piecemeal, watered down policies yeah. that really, at the end of the day, don't really impact the end, uh, the end user or the end person at the day to day. Even the person at the margin is still f- feeling the brunt of it, right? Just because a party wants to remain in power, so you don't have a, you don't have the guts to do what's necessary um, in order to help people. Such good points. You know, Eddie, you bring up a really good point. And we'll end on that note. Um, really powerful, powerful points that I, I hope hey, for a lot run, of You got to run for office, man. Yeah, oh, Eddie, you got to run for office. Damn. You clearly you don't care. Office, you don't man. care about being reelected. For you, you're all about the people. <laughs> Eddie, the Eddie 2025. Um, <laughs> but in sales, actually, like kind of like thinking about like a, uh, a field or a world that's like completely unrelated to everything we're talking about. A lot of the times in sales, we talk about the fact that like you cannot solve a problem you don't fully understand. It's like almost impossible. And any, it almost sounds like that's just kind of where we're at, right? Where like conceptually we get it, like we 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 know the high level, but we we like like even to batters, but we just haven't gotten to the root causes. And mm-hmm. and hopefully we have someone or we find someone with the guts to kind of dig into what those root causes are and 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 address it accordingly. If not, then Eddie, then they really that responsibility lies on your shoulders. So <laughs> my vote is with you, my friend. Uh, we'll end it there. Good, great episode, gentlemen. This was a really good conversation. <laughs>